0: For those of you that are new, my name is Ryan uh, and I serve as the teaching pastor here, which means uh, that I get to lead us in studying God's word and how it speaks to us today. On Wednesday, on Wednesday morning, I was putting the final touches on my sermon on Jesus and marriage when my phone buzzed with a text from my brother, Uh, simply a couple of words, are you seeing this? I quickly joined the world in watching the storming of our capital. This uh, outbreak, this riot, led uh, to this point, the death of five, one of them being a police officer, as law enforcement were beaten with pipes and fire extinguishers, as property was damaged and stolen in some cases, as feces were smeared on the capital of the United States, as bombs were defused, as arrests are still being made. Now, this event came forward out of, I mean, multiple motivations. Some of it being the president's rhetoric, some of it being conspiracies and nationalism and white supremacy. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is look for the Confederate flags in and around Trump's flags. Those carrying Trump flags with sweaters that said six million wasn't enough in reference to the Holocaust. Out there on the Capitol lawn, a gallows uh, with a noose hanging was built with shouts of, hang Mike Pence. This person who not only serves as our vice president, but also has been at one of our gatherings, has been in this room in the past. Now, I've spoken and will continue to speak against the sins of nationalism, of racism, of deception and lies. What is it a root behind these false truths that we call conspiracies? I've spoken and will continue to speak again on the reality of white privilege that was even typified in what we saw over this past week. I've spoken on how syncretism and idolatry is not a partisan side. It is not a left or right issue, but it is one on both sides. But today... In particular, we need to address a particular component of what we saw happen on Wednesday. Because alongside Make America Great Again flags were also flags emblazoned with the words Make America Godly Again. There's a video of there at the protest, many of those individuals who would later be storming the Capitol themselves uh, singing together popular worship songs from Carrie Job. There's a video being now sent around of the Proud Boys all taking a knee in their fatigues together in prayer, invoking God moments before they would swarm. Members of this mob hung a giant Jesus 2020 banner in red, white, and blue outside the building that they were now violently defacing. And along with that noose and gallows, a giant wooden cross was erected on a Capitol's lawn. As white nationalists, conspiracy theorists, misogynists, anarchists, criminals, and terrorists occupied the U.S. Capitol, Many evangelicals not only joined them in what was happening, but even blessed it all under the banner of Jesus saves. For many, when they hear the word Christian, it is these images and these ideologies which come to mind. And this blasphemous syncretism is one of the biggest both evangelistic and discipleship issues facing us in our world today. We need to be deeply clear unapologetically clear about what Christianity is not as we live out and share what it is. And over the past five days, the popular form that this took on social media and in interviews and conversations was some form of people saying, not my Jesus, not my Jesus. But this will not work. Not my Jesus will not work. This sort of defense against what we saw this week because this simply plays into the relativization of truth that currently plagues our nation. It is to play a card within the hand that's already been dealt. The plague rotting away at our nation where truth is no longer located in the objective but rather in subjective perspectives. We've seen this within fake news, COVID conspiracies, QAnon, voter fraud issues, all of this. In our age, truth has no longer been something objective which is set before us that we deal with or don't, but rather truth is now a buffet of options set before us where we can find the voices which agree with the particular perspectives that we carry. And from there, we can then move on and feast on what we've called truth. But if Christianity is based in the objective, historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we cannot join the table of relative truth, of radical individualism. Not only does it lead to all sorts of problems, but our witness is on the line, us actually defending a faith that's worth believing in. This is why I've repeatedly warned against the dangers of subjective Christianity. I've used cute language for it. Build a Jesus workshop, stretch Armstrong Jesus, or choose your own adventure Christianity. It was my first sermon here when I was not even on staff. I was the guest. You didn't even know I was the new teaching pastor. It showed up back in the spring. It showed up back in the fall. The issue within American Christianity is where Jesus, just like truth, becomes a relative buffet through which we can choose what we want or don't want within him. And this danger can run in the direction of the left and right, but what we saw on Wednesday was one of them. This choosing and making Jesus into something that he is not, that benefits our primary perspective, doesn't belong to white supremacists, but is the air that we breathe in American Christianity or, evangel- or evangelicalism. And this isn't located within the South. I've seen it in the South. I've seen it in my years in Georgia. I've seen it in my years in in Southwest Missouri or my time in North Carolina, but I've seen it in Reno, Nevada. I've seen it in Seattle, Washington. I've seen it in Los Angeles. The table that has been set by evangelicals that based out of a biblical illiteracy, a a getting swept into the current of radical individualism and subjective truth, allows each individual person to form not only truth, but Jesus himself into the image of what they want for themselves. To choose for themselves what is good and evil and to have some form of a shadowy Jesus that agrees with them. This has been my motivating conviction behind our Discovering Jesus series in Mark's gospel. There is a deep, deep need within our nation and not just with our nation, us, Christian or not, to return to the objective truth of the eyewitness accounts that we call the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to discover within these who Jesus is, for who he is and who he was and what that means for us, and then to move into our lives in light of that. We need to do it for ourselves for our own ability to truly be able to say that we're following Jesus and not some construct. We need to do it for those outside the faith so they may have a genuine perspective and and, and person to ask questions about who Jesus is and not to get their opinions. And we need to do it for those within our country that have been misled by this syncretism, this idolatry. This is the setting before us and this is what we need. The good news is, is that Mark's gospel is up to the task. If you've remembered our time in Mark's gospel, I've talked about Mark and when he was writing this gospel from Rome, the capital alongside the apostle Peter as they're writing in a similar political historical moment with political upheaval and revolts and riots, some of which Christians are getting engaged in. This is the context of Mark's gospel. Mark is writing his gospel for his readers to discover Jesus for who he is, not some construct of what they may have, what it means to follow him. Because the answer to what Mark saw in his day and what we're seeing in our day is not some form of not my Jesus, but not Jesus. Full stop. And so today, as we turn our attention to Mark 32 through 45, in light of Wednesday, we're going to be discovering what Jesus says about power, about authority, about political influence, and about greatness and his entirely upside down way of viewing these things. One, that upon examination will show just how far those that we saw among the crowd with Jesus' saves and prayers and songs to him on Wednesday are from the way of Jesus. Next week, we'll be back for Jesus and Marriage as we close out our Discovering Jesus series. Before we pray, notes are in the comments uh, there that, that Jenny's posted. You can jump in. We're going to pray. But this is where we are Mark 10 is Jesus addressing what was it last week? Jesus and what? Money. This week, here it is, Jesus and power. Next week, we're gonna be back for Jesus and marriage or Jesus and sex at, at the root of it. Money, sex, and power. Jesus is going after everything that we so often will excuse so that we may have the way that we want them. Today, he's going after power. Yes, last week was money, which pissed off it. We got everybody mad. This week is gonna be power, which might, some of you that lean in the direction of one way might get you mad. Next week will be marriage and sex, which might get others mad. So Let's pray and then we're going to get into Mark chapter 10. Father, we stand here before our open Bibles or maybe our phones pulled up to Mark chapter 10. Once again, asking that you might reveal and help us to discover who Jesus is. God, help us to be aware of the constructs, the desires of our heart that keep us from discovering him fully. Jesus, would you speak now through your words as you did to James and John? Would we hear them with them? And God, may we follow you for who you are. Help us to see you for you and to follow you in light of that. In name we pray, amen. So Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Let's read together. Where it says, And they were on the road, Jesus and his disciples, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were also afraid. And taking the twelve disciples again, Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after 3 days he will rise here at the beginning we get an introduction to what is taking place the setting of our story it is Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem on the road to the capital city of his day. And why are his disciples amazed and afraid? Because they have all of these mixed emotions about what's going to happen when King Jesus gets to the capital. So Jesus takes some time while on the road to once again remind his disciples of what's going to happen when King Jesus, when he arrives. And here we find the third and final prediction in Mark's gospel of what's going to happen. If you've been with us back in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, we've had two predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection just like this where Jesus declares that when he gets to the capital, the son of man, talking about himself, is going to be handed over by the religious leaders. He's going to be wrongly condemned to death. He's going to be delivered over to Rome. That's what he means by the Gentiles, to be humiliated and killed. But three days later, he will resurrect, he will rise. This little story right here, this little prediction, the third of them, is somehow what it means for King Jesus to arrive and be inaugurated into his royal glory. A couple months back, I talked about how you know, during our presidential debates, one of the big questions for the two were, in your first few days in office, what are you going to do? And all of these answers about COVID or about the economy or whatever it was. This is what Jesus says. His first days in office are going to be. It's this stunning answer. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be spit upon and beat. This is somehow what it means for Jesus to become king. This is why later this month, uh, after we finish Jesus and marriage, we're going to go into our final teaching series in the Gospel of Mark that we're calling Enthroning Jesus. And it will be from that, that final week of Jesus in Jerusalem, from his triumphal entry to his death and resurrection. Enthroning Jesus is what's coming. But to keep back here with Mark 10, if you've been with us for these last three chapters with this third prediction, you're expecting a third of something else. Because after those past two predictions, what we found was the disciples immediately revealed their commitment to a different sort of way, a different sort of kingdom. Because though there was a diverse set of beliefs within Judaism about what the coming Messiah king was going to be like, his disciples have twice now, after those other two predictions shown themselves to believe in the prominent view that the Messiah Christ, the king was coming and would come to lead a violent revolt against Rome. That he would come to, we could put it, make Israel great again. That he would come to elevate the national, the ethnic, and religious identity of the Jewish people of Israel over all others, specifically Rome. This is the vision of what they're waiting for. And so when Jesus gives these past two predictions through some question or some statement of the disciples, we find their commitment is to a completely different way. And that's why they don't understand what Jesus is saying. So if that's happened twice now, what should we expect At the third prediction, Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus and they said to him, "Uh, teachers, rabbi, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. What a bold claim. And Jesus said, what do you want for me to do to you? Or for you? And they said to him, grant to us to sit, one at your right, one at your left hand, in your glory. So James and John, immediately after hearing what Jesus has just said, now come to Jesus with a big ask, which isn't a problem because all throughout Mark's gospel, we've had big asks for healings, for deliverance, demons being cast out, food being given to the hungry. We've seen lots of big asks. What's James and John's? That they wanna sit at Jesus's right and left hand in his glory. What they're looking for is a seat in the cabinet. They're looking for power. They're looking for influence. They're looking for prestige. They're looking for glory. And here we find that the problem is not the big ask. The problem is the substance, what the ask was. The problem is they see Jesus as the avenue for political power, specifically theirs. And with it, their national and ethnic pride. They assume that the glory of Jesus will be after he's drained the Roman swamp and he takes his throne and they want in. Whether they ignored or whether they were confused after what Jesus just said, they're missing it entirely. And this has been James and John's MO throughout the gospel story. I mean, just back a couple months ago, uh, we talked about how James and John are going through and they come to a Samaritan town that is a Gentile, an outsider, non-Jewish land, and, and after leaving, they ask Jesus, "Do you want us to call down fire from heaven, to consume, to destroy them?" You see, they have a particular vision of what it means that Jesus the Messiah is here, and for them it means the destruction of. Their national, Rome, and with the Samaritans, ethnic outsiders. James and John here are representatives of any who use Jesus as an accomplice to their political ends. Time and again, we've seen them throughout history. We've seen this on Wednesday. We saw it in Nazi Germany. We saw it within the American slave trade. We saw it within the Crusades. People who do not discover Jesus for who he is they turn him into what they want to be. They, they turn him into a buffet of their own choosing where they can get a little bit of, I go to heaven after I die and a little bit of this teaching about this and this teaching about that. But I conveniently can be deaf and ignore all of the teachings about Jesus on other things. This is what's happened. Jesus has just talked about the way of his mission is what? Suffering and dying, humiliation, being spit upon and death. They are not even, they're, they're just not even hearing it. And they think that to be with Jesus means that we get political power. We get ethnic and national privilege raised over the others. They're not hearing Jesus at all. So what is Jesus's response to James and John and all who they represent throughout history? Mark 10 verse 38. Jesus says to James and John right here, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, oh yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand, my glory is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared. Jesus opens by saying, you don't know what you're asking. You haven't been listening to me. You want to join me in my glory? Then you know what that means? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? He's just so repetitive with the cup and baptism language there. And so what's going on here with the cup and the baptism language? The first is the cup. Throughout the biblical story, the cup has shown up as a metaphor uh, for God's wrath in the abstract, God's judgment. But in particular, the cup is not just God's wrath as some abstract idea. It is always connected to humans being handed over to the implications and the consequences of their own actions. Most often, and I would not even say most often, I'd be willing to say always, we'll say 99% of the time, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Psalm 75, the cup is not just being handed over the consequences of your actions, it is being conquered by an oppressive empire, which is the consequence of your actions. So when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm drinking? He's talking about this cup that is God's wrath, this cup that is being squashed by an oppressive empire, this cup, which is the consequences of sinful actions and somehow Jesus is going to drink it. Similarly, this idea of baptism throughout the Old Testament story is always a metaphor. Not so much as we would use it now as some kind of statement or sacrament of belonging to Jesus, but in the Old Testament, this language of being overwhelmed, of drowned, immersed into suffering and death. Symbolically, this language of the cup and the baptism here are Jesus restating exactly what we read in verses 33 and 34 the suffering, being handed over to the Gentiles, to Rome, shame, being spit upon, being beaten, being crucified by Rome. This is, he's restating exactly what he just said, but he's using it in this metaphorical language, maybe to provoke their, lang- their, their minds, but they're still not getting it. The metaphor's lost on them. What do they say? Oh yeah, totally, Jesus, we got this. The cup, kind of baptism, we're on it. Jesus has this strange offset line that comes in where he goes, yes, actually you will drink it. Him alluding to the fact that James would eventually be martyred and John exiled for the gospel. But what more interesting is, is the fact that he says, but for my right and my left hand in glory, that's not for me to grant. Well, who's it for? This mystery actually hangs over Mark's gospels until chapter 15. When the right and the left, this language gets used one more time. Actually the only two times in the gospel. Same words on the right and the left are there at Jesus' crucifixion, where there he is, two criminals are crucified alongside him on his right and his left. The implications of what Mark is insinuating or what Jesus is getting at here is the glory that these guys are so caught up on wanting to have, be a part of. This this enthronement that they, they they see Jesus is taking, but they want it. They don't understand that that Jesus's glory is his cross. That Jesus's enthronement is his crucifixion. That is his cup and his baptism. And so James and John, they want glory, but they don't see the way that Jesus is bringing it about. That Jesus's moment of glory will be his crucifixion. And those who will sit on his right and left in his glory are actually the two criminals crucified beside him. But the disciples, James and John, are not alone. Mark 10, verse 41. And when the 10, so that's minus James and John, the other 12 disciples, they began to become indignant at James and John. So Jesus hears this, he calls them over and he says to them, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And he continues, but we'll stop here. When the other 10 disciples hear of this conversation that James and John are having with Jesus, they become angry, indignant not because they're like, oh, these guys are missing the Jesus thing because that's the thing that they want. They want the right and left hand. So they're angry with him. So Jesus sees this happening within his 12 and he sees this continuing problem within his disciples. One that continues today is that his so-called followers are following not his way, but the way of the Gentiles, the way of Rome, the way of any and every empire throughout human history. The way of, as he puts it, lording over or exercising authority, which is a tame way to translate that at best. One translator puts it a little more directly. Those who rule become tyrants. Those who are their supposed superiors become their dictators. This is what James and John and the disciples are looking for. You don't have to read much of Roman history to see what Jesus is getting at here. Rome, how did they exercise their power? Through military power and through violence through misleading propaganda about their Caesars and conspiracies, through leader worship, through authoritarianism, through tyranny, through nationalism, and literally the deification of the state of Rome. Roma was a goddess that you worshiped. Through violent revolts. Mark, in the time of writing this, you might've remembered, was living within the range of the year of the four emperors. Where emperor after empire, with their little revolts and assassination attempts, After one, after another, within one year, four different emperors. This is the context of when Jesus says that's how the Gentiles rule. This is what he's thinking about. And this is what he sees within his disciples. And so this is the way of the Gentiles, the way of Rome, the way of the world. What is the the difference that he's calling his disciples to that they seem to just not get? Mark 10, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. This is the way that the rulers of the Gentiles do it. This is political talk. Jesus could say, you know, the rabbis of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they like to you know, flout around, they like to do that. He could say, you know, your bosses, you know, the employers. He could even do slave master relationship, masters that are bad. He could compare to anything else. Jesus compares to the Gent Roman political leaders. Jesus is talking about politics here. Not so among you, Jesus says. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. But it shall not be so among you is what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus in his trial before Pilate said his kingdom is not of this world. This was not Jesus saying that his kingdom belonged to some other plane of existence, but some other mode of existence, which is why he follows it by saying, for if it was of this world, my servants would be fighting. This is why when Jesus gets arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and goes to cut off one of those in the mob coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus not only you know heals and slaps the ear back on the guy. He tells Peter to put your sword away. This is enough of this, is what Jesus says. His way is not the way of the sword. His way is not the way of Rome and the Gentiles. So explicitly, whatever Jesus was being paraded around on Wednesday, it was not the Jesus of the Gospels. It was not the Jesus of the Bible. It was not the Jesus of history. It was not the Jesus of true Orthodox Christianity. That Jesus is the one who told his disciples who thought like Rome, Get behind me, Satan. That Jesus tells his followers, as we just read, that his way is the way of being a servant to one another and a slave to all. You see, being a slave or servant was scandalous then as it is now, especially for these power hungry disciples. But what does a servant or slave mean? What is Jesus getting at here? A servant or slave, quite simply, we could do a whole sermon on this, but a servant or slave quite simply is someone who gives themselves for the welfare and the benefit of another. To be a servant to one another means that I give myself for the welfare, the benefit, the good of another. The slave is I, I am indebted to, I give myself, my life to the benefit of another. It is the opposite of the way of Rome. Tim Keller in his book, Jesus is King, his kind of you know, collection of sermons on Mark's gospel on this text writes, for you, God says, the route to gaining influence is not taking power. Influence gained through power and control does not really change society. It doesn't change hearts. I'm calling you to a totally different approach. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe what you believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not just for yourself, but for them. They'll trust you. When they voluntarily begin to look to you because of the attractiveness of your service and love, then you'll have real influence. It'll be an influence given to you by others, not taken from others. And so Jesus isn't against his disciples having influence. He isn't against his disciples engaging with the the political realm. We find that, representat- that, that, that work throughout the scriptures, but it is enacted and dealt with and carried out in opposition to the ways of the world. So again, to put this explicit, being a servant slave looks like breaking down social, racial, economic barriers. It looks like practicing costly forgiveness and table fellowship with those that society despises. It looks like canceling debts. It looks like prophetically opposing injustice, denouncing corrupt religion, caring for the imprisoned, turning the other cheek, which is a, that call to nonviolence, paying our taxes, radical generosity to the poor and outsider, loving even our enemy, welcoming the outcast and prioritizing the vulnerable. The problem is with a list like this, that is a summation, my best, at summarizing what we find within scripture. Most of evangelical Christianity and our pick and choose is I can think of about two or three of these that have showed up at a regular basis across most American churches. When the scriptures say, this is what servant looks like and what I'm calling you to. Even further, in a recent Lifeway poll, 61% of self-identified evangelicals said they hoped their presidential vote would most benefit people who are like me or me and my family. Only 15% of evangelical people, that their vote, what was prioritizing their presidential vote, was in service of people who our country has failed as those they most hope to benefit. 61%, me and mine, 15%, the most vulnerable within our nation. You get these kind of voting habits when we fail to discover Jesus and his call for us to be a servant to one another and a slave to all. You might've heard in that Tim Keller quote and that call to service and, and sacrificial love, almost a, that we don't engage with politics and law. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the problem that we have had within American Christianity is the separation of church and state. And what I mean by that is that the church refuses to speak to issues of the state that that has not even been on the buffet of options. And so in that vacuum, no wonder the loudest voices have come in and misled and deceived with conspiracy. Like this, this is what's happened. Jesus says, the way to greatness is not to embrace the empire's way of doing things, but the way of a servant. He's making a political statement here. So this is our model of influence. This is our way forward. This is what is so diametrically opposed to what we saw on Wednesday. And it's the our way, it's the way of the kingdom because it's the way of our king. As our final verse is Mark 10:45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We open back at the beginning of this text with uh, Jesus's third prediction. Three times he talks about what is going to happen in Jerusalem. That he's going to suffer. He's going to die specifically after being handed over by religious leaders, and that's going to come through the hands of Rome. But here in Mark ten forty five, we find the culminating why behind those three whats: why the Son of Man came, why Jesus, the Son of Man. I love the language of came and noting the fact that Jesus is not just another human, but is the pre-existent God himself who has come to us. So why did Jesus come? To suffer, to be humiliated, to be spit upon, beat, crucified, die. Why did he come to drink the cup and to be baptized with his baptism? Because he came not to be served, but to serve. Here, this is the why of Jesus' mission. It's his mission statement. Right here in verse 45, this is holy ground for Mark's gospel. It's rightly been called the key to the gospel. He came not for others to give themselves for his welfare, but to give himself for others. He came not to lift up his cause and his desires and his needs and the needs of those like him, but those of others, specifically those most in need. But how is his suffering service? How is his death an act of seeking our welfare, of being a servant to us? continue to find the answer, to give his life as a ransom for many. We think of ransom in terms of like ransom as in somebody was kidnapped. Ransom within Jesus's time, this uh, Greek word behind ransom is, is the word for a price prayed for the f- freedom of a slave in particular. The ransom was normally the compensation, the monetary value that was given to free a slave. And Jesus here, the slave, Free, Jesus, the son of man, becomes the salvation and the servant to those who have been enslaved by, by this compensation, this ransom effect happening. Jesus saw the giving of his life as somehow the payment that would set free those who were enslaved in sin and wickedness. Not least, as we've just found within the context of this conversation, those caught up in the lust for position and power, James and John. See, James and John were looking for freedom from Rome, but Jesus declares that they are not not only enslaved to Rome, but Rome's way of doing things. James and John are looking for power in the same old places of violence, of swords, of political power and prowess and positions. Jesus is setting forth a new sort of power, the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that Jesus launched with his enthronement on his cross. See, Jesus seems to believe that you cannot defeat the usual sort of power with the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another force, it is still force and violence that wins. And we continue within the cul-de-sac of humanity. The declaration of Christianity is that at the heart of the mission of Jesus and the victory of God over all the powers of this world is Jesus in obedience to the Isaiah, it was Isaiah's prophetic vocation his prophetic vision of this suffering servant, one who would give his life as a ransom for many. This is is what Jesus' whole mission is about. That he would give himself all the way to death for those that who are bound for death. You see, Jesus didn't come to build the gallows, but to go to them. Jesus didn't come to crucify his enemies, but to be crucified for them. And here we find The incredible paradox at the center of Mark's gospel that we're going to be unpacking in the months to come is the glorious enthroned son of man is also the suffering servant at the same time hanging from a cross. This is the entire paradox behind Christianity that somehow not only God becoming man, but that in that person, Jesus, His moment of enthronement and power and glory and dominion and overthrowing all of the powers of this world comes when it looks like he's being overthrown by them. That his moment of of bringing life comes in the moment of his death, of freedom in the moment of his enslavement. This is what's at the middle of the gospel. And the reality is that the cross of Jesus, that this is not only the event that saves us, it is the event that shapes us. And that's exactly what happened for James and John. After the resurrection of Jesus, his bodily resurrection back into life, that he came and and worked within his disciples and then sent them out into the world. And what we found is that that changed James and John. Seeing the resurrected Jesus going through his cross, that his three predictions coming true transformed them to lay down their swords and their ways of doing things, that they went into the way of following Jesus and his new way of doing things. James was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred under Herod. Herod, for who his whole life, he's thinking about the one that he's gonna overthrow and sit on his seat is the exact one that James, like Jesus, took on the posture of the suffering servant and died under. John, who was arrested and exiled by Rome out to the island of Patmos for the rest of his time. These two were so utterly transformed by the Jesus that they discovered within his life, death, and resurrection that it transformed them and shaped them into people who lived specifically in the enacted power and greatness in the ways that Jesus did. They adopted the suffering servant mantle as they followed the way of Jesus, finding the freedom and salvation that they were looking for in that. And so the question is, will we do the same? So let's pray.